Let me open us then in prayer. Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you are our God and our King. You have created this entire cosmos and you sustain it moment by moment. There's not one rogue molecule. And you've made a place for us. You are the ultimate hospitable one. You've made a place for us and put us here um, that we might live and bear your image and serve your purpose and bring you glory. You've given us meaning to our life. And you do that through, um, through means, through ways that we don't always recognize. So we ask that you would show us your way. Lord, uh, reveal to us how you operate in this world. Reveal to us through your holy word, which you've so graciously given us. And help us to see you all the more clearly so that we can glorify you rightly and have gracious and uh, grateful hearts um, that we might um, see the meaning that you've placed in our lives as we go throughout our daily rhythms and help us to offer up the living sacrifice that you've called us to. Be with us now as we try to study a bit of um, your word as well as the history of your church and help us to understand more clearly um, the, uh, the concept of your calling us, of our vocations in this life. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. So... Uh, Maybe, I don't know if everybody was here last week or not. If not, that's okay. There's some handouts here on the side. Uh, Tim and others, anybody that comes in. If you need a pencil or something to write with, I've got some up here. Uh, the class is vocation. What am I called to do and to be? Last week, first lesson, we went through the caller and the called. And we were studying uh, what is the context of calling. And we talked about how your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. Um, you're not on an island as you determine how to spend your days here under the sun. It's God who is the caller, and we are the called. And we need to find our calling from Him, not in our feelings, but in His Word. Uh, we are to love Christ by obedience to His call, to His commands, and thus pursue our purpose in life, which is man's chief end, to glorify and enjoy God forever. This week, we're going to look at the meaning of means. What is the concept of calling? Um, some of the things we'll learn, spoiler alert, you are part of a royal priesthood. Um, all work for the Lord is sacred. It has meaning and worth. God loves his people through his people. And loving your neighbor is a framework of faithful calling. We'll dig into this in much more detail. Next week, again, just to give you sort of your bearings, we're going to talk about the scope of the summons, and we'll move into what is the content of your calling, where we'll look at how Christ is Lord over every sphere of life, and that you are called to glorify and enjoy him in all things. We'll specifically look at the Dominion Mandate and the Great Commission and how they are equally ultimate ends that we are to pursue. And you can see on the back of your handout the rest of the course as we go. 
on the front of your handout um, is sort of the the note page where you can do some fill in the gap or like I, like I mentioned, just write down things that maybe are interesting or better yet, questions that you might have that you want to ask um, towards the end if we have time or um, or just share with me afterwards so that I can try to address them in, in forthcoming classes. All right. Um, the goal of this lesson is for students, all of us, to understand the concept of calling. Together, we're going to explore what it's meant throughout history of the church, um, how we ought to view our roles in Christ's kingdom, and how love is the lens through which we ought to analyze our faithfulness to God in our work. Next week, uh, we're going to move from this concept to the content, and we're going to look at all the work left to be done, um, the various spheres, and and how we ought to pursue excellence in them. But this week, um, sort of a, a historical overview and, and how we ought to think about calling. Before we do, I want to stimulate your, um, your thinking a little bit with some questions. It's, you know, it may or may not be early for you. So um, what, what motivates you as just you know, a person, an individual living here in the world? What, uh, what drives you to spend your time or your money or your energy? What has uh, great worth and reward? For you, what motivates you? He said, "Providing for your family." Yeah, it's a good motivator. What else? You don't have to feel pious in this. Just you know, there's a lot of things in my mind. hunger motivates me when I'm you know, different things. We have myriad motivations. That's cool. Yeah. It's a gift of the Spirit. Um, so hospitality and facilitating community, conversation. What else? Yeah, that's cool. It's getting the family together. I like making things that I think would be appreciated or um, cherished. Yeah, years to come. Uh, I like that. Work of your hands that's going to matter downstream. Very good. What are um, what types of things maybe excite you and give you energy? I, you know, there are some things that are more difficult to get excited about than others. Um, there are things that you can spend five minutes doing and it feels like five hours have grinded by. And then there are things you can spend five hours doing that, you know, five minutes worth. So what are some of the things that you can spend all day long doing and not get tired at? Nothing. <laughs> I can sleep all day and not get tired. 
Yeah. Sure, yeah. Accomplishing tasks. That makes sense. That's a good one. It feels good to stand back and look and say, this is good. I did a thing. Yeah. What else gives you energy or excites you? Strategic design. Mm-hmm. I can think about something that's 50,000 feet for hours and think, feel like it's five minutes and putting my watch and say, oh my gosh, I spent two hours thinking through how to do that. Right. Hope you're on the clock. Yeah. yeah. It's good. So thinking the, 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 the long line view. Where do things fit in? Why do they matter? How do they work best? What else? Anything else? Getting lost in a really well written book. Yeah. Carried along in the story. That's that's craftsmanship. Word yeah. Uh, wordsmithing. Uh, that's I'm in marketing, I like that too. Messaging matters. Um, okay, so this is helpful. Um, as we as we look into calling, these things are going to matter. So I want you to have that in the back of your mind. Motivation, what what matters? Why why do we do what we do? And so, at the end of the day, uh, our calling or our various callings, because we have multiple, are not merely academic ideas. They're not pie in the sky, ethereal so what isms. Uh, they work their way out into real life actions and interactions that we have with others. The what of our calling consists in large part in our labor, in, in the things that we do. And that's generally where we get jazzed up. We're doers, okay? When, when, when you're meeting someone for the first time, we ask, what do you do? If I want to get to know who you are, I ask, what is it that you do? That's just the air we breathe. But the why of our calling uh, is also important. It turns out to have a great influence on the what. Uh, in your handout, you can, uh, yeah, the first sentence there, I think, uh, yep. Why we do what we do shapes everything from the motivation of our work to the methods of our work. So the why shapes everything from the motivation down to the methods of our work. And it influences both the attitudes we have towards our work and the satisfaction that we derive from it. So the why we do what we do influences both the attitudes we have towards our work and the satisfaction we derive from it. Uh, secular author Simon Sinek has a book called Start With Why. Maybe some of you have read it. In it, he features what he calls the golden circle. And he's got why at the center, followed by how and then what in expanding concentric circles. He says that the why is your purpose, and very few people or companies uh, can clearly articulate why they do what they do. Some, he says, are good at explaining the how, but every single company and person in the world knows what they do. Uh, the problem is that bypassing the why to focus on the what is commoditizing, right? and it's unsustainable in terms of motivation and even competition, for that matter, from a business perspective. Sinek says, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And what you do simply proves what it is that you believe about why you're doing it. He gives the example of Apple, other examples too. Um, why do you buy watches and phones from a computer company? 
Um, he says that for Apple, the why is we think differently and we challenge the status quo until they get so big that they become it. But this is their why. And then, and then how, by making products that are easy to use and elegant and well-designed, what? Well, we just happen to make computers or watches or phones or self-driving cars or whatever the next thing is. But we bought into the brand because we, you know, we bought into the why that Apple does what it does. <clears throat> so what? Who cares? Why in the world would I care about some secular influencer or business guru in a Sunday school class where we're trying to expound upon the world? Well, God loves his creation, and he supplies it with myriad forms of what we would call common grace. Uh, Jesus says of God in Matthew 5, where he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And I bring this up because I believe that Simon is on to something. He has, by God's common grace and God's general revelation in the world, uh, discovered what the special revelation of the scriptures has taught throughout generations of faithful. Uh, namely, why we do what we do matters greatly. And we cannot faithfully live out our external actions without a rightly ordered internal orientation of the heart. To do otherwise is hypocritical and it's sin. <clears throat> Jesus says the good person, in Luke 6, 5, uh, 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Solomon says in Proverbs 4, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Why we do what we do matters greatly. <clears throat> when Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, he spent the first three chapters explaining what we call the indicatives, um, all of the blessings of a life in Christ and all the mysteries of the gospel. The last three chapters he fills with all the imperatives, all the commands for right living in light of those previously explained truths. He opens chapter four with the therefore. Good expositors would always say, what's the therefore, therefore? He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So Paul started with the why. Uh, when God delivered the Ten Commandments through Moses in Exodus 20, how did he start? Not with the first commandment, but with the prologue. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then he said, you shall have no other gods before me. He started with why. When Jesus called his disciples to himself and gave them the great commission, notice what he said. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus started with why. As we look to better understand our callings from God, it's important to see both the context that we discussed last week and the concept that we're covering today before we delve into the content of our specific stations in life. So you're going to see as we walk through a brief history of the doctrine of vocation today how various beliefs about its meaning influences significantly the type of fruit produced by believers living out those thoughts. So a principle, I think it's in your handout, Orthodoxy precedes orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, doctrine, uh, precedes orthopraxy, practice or praxis. 
Right thinking, right belief, is a prerequisite for right living. So, what ought we believe about the concept of calling? I want to give a little historical survey. Uh, In 1997, there was a student by the name of Alistair uh, McKenzie, and he wrote a thesis for his Master of Theology degree at the University of Otago in Dunedin, Dunedin, New Zealand. Uh, It's entitled, Faith at Work, Vocation, the Theology of Work, and Pastoral Implications. It's 200-something pages long uh, and covers historical developments on the doctrine of vocation, various applications to the ministry and mission of believers, and, uh, and a number of pastoral implications for church leaders and how they address discipleship in their congregations. Um, I came across this through the Theology of Work project. In, in the bibliography, you'll see that. Um, I don't really have time to go into a whole in-depth thing. There's a, there's a lot in that project. It's years of work together. They've got a full commentary on the Bible that goes through um, every book of the Bible and talks about the implications for work and calling, uh, numerous little books on different aspects of calling, and just there's a ton of stuff for, for laymen, for pastors, for academics. So if you go to theologyofwork.org, you can dig into to all that. It's quite a, quite a lot. But that's how, that's how I came across this thesis. I, just, I don't have a repository of random you know, academic papers or anything. Um, it was in some of my reading through them. But what I'd like to do for the next few minutes is leverage some of Alistair's hard work in the research and give you a summary of different understandings of vocation that have existed throughout history. It is a summary. Um, there's way more to it. I'm, just, I'm trying to pull out pieces that matter for us. But um, So it's going to be hard for me to quote and, and cite extensively in what I'm saying. So just know that if, if you hear anything good, it's either from him or from Keller or Veith or Grant or any of these other guys, and, and the fluff is me. Um, but in the notes, you can see where there's quotes, so you know it's not from me, and it can be attributed that way. All right. So the church is a couple thousand years old. You know, Jesus came on the scene, uh, in, in, not in a vacuum, but in a world that already existed. There was already... Uh, cultural influences, ways of thinking when Christ showed up and when the church was formed. um, And so it's important for us to kind of see what was it like, what what was the thinking of the day when Jesus showed up and delivered um, his teaching, which we know is a continuation of what what was in the Old Testament. um, So two big influences in, in the world just before Christ came on the scene would be the Greeks and the Jews. And the Greeks... Um, the Greek worldview, the notion of work was looked down upon. It was thought to be a curse. Aristotle said, the end of labor is to gain leisure. And he said that all paid jobs absorb and degrade the mind. Maybe you feel that way. I do sometimes at the end of the day. Um, Greek society was highly dichotomized such that only an elite few could live this good life of leisure and participate in uh, political or the contemplative life. The majority of work was done by slaves. Uh, everyday work was demeaning and should be avoided. Keller uh, summarized it by saying that to, to the Greek world, the soul was good, but the soil was bad. Um, but then you have God uh, who reveals himself as a worker in Genesis. For the Jews, they, the opening scene of you know, Genesis shows God with his hands in the dirt as he creates the first human being. 
The Hebrews, like the Greeks, saw value in contemplation and engagement of the mind, but not at the exclusion of work. McKenzie says, Jewish teachers were not expected to live off of the contributions of their students, Jewish rabbis, but were all expected to have a trade through which they could support themselves. Far from being avoided, work was to be embraced as a part of God's purposes in creation, and theological reflection would be engaged in by people who were daily engaged in everyday life in the world. So when you're thinking about God, you're thinking about it as you go about your, your daily life. Uh, this, I think, can be seen in the imagery of the Psalms, uh, you know, where David often relates the emotions of his heart to just regular, ordinary, daily activity. Similarly, Moses uh, teaches in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 that the discussion of God's truths and theological education is to occur in the midst of regular daily life. I'll read Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. He says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Very tactile, normal, regular, everyday activities. That's the venue. That's the classroom in which we're supposed to have our theological education and training and think about God as we go throughout our day. Then you move into the early Christian church. and early Christianity, um, there's no call in the New Testament for all Christians to withdraw from participation in everyday life and work. Quite the contrary. Uh, Jesus himself was known as a carpenter and the son of a carpenter, a tecton. Uh, he called some of his inner circle of disciples, if you recall, to, you know, they were fishermen. He called them certainly to leave their fishing nets and follow him. But, but there are examples even of um, in their discipleship and in their time with him, them still continuing to fish. Um, certainly he gave no general call for all Christians to give up everyday work. And much of his teaching drew on themes from the world of everyday work without any kind of self-consciousness or you know, apologies. Um, Paul um, emphasized a positive view of work. He commended all Christians to continue in their work and to work well. Uh, and he plainly continued in his trade as a tent maker during his church planting ministry. And this seems to be the general Christian pattern uh, for the first century after the apostles. But then distortion comes in, it always does. Gradually, the church fathers began to draw more heavily on Greek and Roman motifs rather than specifically on biblical teaching, and this resulted in a lower view of work. This is reflected in, in Eusebius around 300 A.D. or so uh, in his doctrine about the two lives. He says this. He says, two ways of life were thus given by the law of Christ to his church. One is above nature and beyond common human living, it admits not marriage, childbearing, property, nor the possession of wealth, but wholly and permanently separate from the common customary life of mankind. It devotes itself to the service of God alone. Such then is the perfect form of the Christian life. And the other, more humble, more human, permits man to join in pure nuptials and to produce children. It allows them to have minds for farming, for trade, and for other more secular interests as well as for religion, but a kind of secondary grade of piety is attributed to them. Sacred-secular divide, right? That's what you mentioned yesterday, or last week. Uh, in a similar way, Augustine even distinguished between the active life and the contemplative life. 
Augustine wasn't quite as um, degrading to work as, as Eusebius, but uh, he said while both kinds of life were good, or um, Augustine had, had praise for the work of farmers and craftsmen and merchants, uh, the contemplative life was clearly of a higher order. So even though he had praise for the work that was needed, he, he did believe that contemplative life was a higher order. The belief was that while at times it may be necessary to follow the active life, wherever possible one should choose the other. The one life is loved and the other is just endured. This depreciation of the doctrine of vocation continued on into the Middle Ages with monasticism of uh, Benedict and Aquinas in the Dominican tradition, but it saw a shift in the German mystics who believed that, um, quote, for the laity, the nearest way to blessedness in gaining heaven is by working faithfully in the secular position in which God has placed them. So he still had a dichotomy. They still believe there was a difference, but he said you can actually grow in your piety and grow in your holiness and your um, gaining of heaven by, by working faithfully in, in, your, in your place. Um, this new way of looking at things resulted in alterations in common speech. By the time that Luther came on, on the scene, the word vocation or calling in the sense of class or profession was already in general usage. All right, and then, then enters the, the Reformation. I told you this is a high view. There's like, if you're a historian in the room, I'm sure you're cringing because we're avoiding so much. But um, the Reformation of the church and Christian calling. So Luther comes on scene and restores some of the balance. It was initially through the work of Martin Luther that the 16th century reformers recovered a sense that all of life, including daily work, could be understood as a calling from God. According to Luther, we respond to the call to love our neighbor by fulfilling the duties that are associated with our everyday work. Work is our call to serve. And this work includes domestic and civic duties as well as our employment. Luther said we can only truly serve God in the midst of everyday circumstances and attempts to elevate the significance of the contemplative life are false. So he says you can only serve God in your everyday work. And this pie in the sky, high by and by, you know, whatever, is, um, is, a, is a false calling. He says, in fact, a monastic life um, has no true calling. It's an escape from the true obedience that God calls us to. According to Luther, vocation is not confined to occupation, but also includes domestic roles and really any action that concerns the world or a person's relationship with their neighbor. Um, Luther and Calvin were kind of contemporaries. Calvin, I think, died 20 years maybe later, something like that, if I remember that right. Um, he, he developed, Calvin developed, um, in, in large part in agreement with Luther, but, um, but some shifts, he had a more dynamic view of vocation. Although Calvin, like Luther, relates the calling both to the given orders of a society and to the particular estates, uh, Luther talked about things in terms of the state, the state of marriage, uh, the state of different. Um, later we'll talk about, uh, in another class, Abraham Kuyper and his sphere sovereignty. You've got spheres of authority, the household or the family, the church, the state. Um, Luther had his estates. So um, although Calvin, like Luther, relates calling both to the given orders of society and to the particular state that a Christian is in, his view is not quite as static as Luther's. Uh, Luther maintained that we obey the divine call when through faith we serve God in our given estate. For Calvin, the work of calling is more of the estate itself. And 
Um, so it's, it's, so for Luther, um, I'm in this state of fatherhood. And uh, I need to be in, in, in that estate faithful in what I'm doing. I need to serve my neighbor, who would be, as a father, my children, uh, in, in this estate. And that's true. Um, Calvin says that's true, but fatherhood itself should be in service to Christ, the, the very estate. So, yes, Brian, the father, in this, in this state, um, should serve Christ, but also all of fatherhood should submit to the Lordship of Christ and be in service of, of his kingdom. Um, for Calvin, a Christian might, with proper reason, change a calling and choose another. Calvin encouraged Christians to examine the social consequences of their work and seek out a truly Christian vocation. Another development in Calvin's understanding of vocation was his stress on the utility of callings. He talks about things like advantage, utility, profit, and fruit of Christian works. So he believed, Calvin believed, a calling would not be approved by God unless it is useful to others. So contrasting these views, for Luther, the primary reason God gives a Christian a vocation in the world is to encourage a life of loving service. Whereas for Calvin, the reason is more related to the proper ordering of human life. Calvin sees vocation as a means of giving glory to God by furthering God's will in the world, while Luther sees it primarily as a means by which God's good gifts are bestowed on mankind. They're not totally in conflict, but there's distinction here. So here's a clear progression. According to Augustine and Aquinas and monasticism, Christians were to serve in the world when necessary. Luther's followers were called to serve in the world. And Calvin's followers were called to transform the world. Monastics said, serve in the world when necessary. Luther said, serve in the world. And Calvin said, transform the world in your service. Some post-Reformation developments, further changes, some good, some bad. Uh, we don't have time to trace them all, but just so you can kind of recognize the various ways in which the understanding of calling and the purpose of mankind, how people both faithful in the church and without um, view their work, has the, they has serious implications on society at large. So following the Reformation, we see the rise of what we would call the Protestant work ethic um, through the disciplined and ordered lives of folks like the Puritans. And we are living on the, you know, the coattails of that even today in a lot of ways. Uh, we see the advent of the Industrial Revolution, and there are major shifts in connection between one's work and family and the fruit uh, of those labors. Maybe there's not, not the direct doing things for your family. I, I did this today, and it benefits my wife and kids this way, and I feel good as I go to bed. Now, there, now there's some disconnect um, that has an impact on a lot of elements of calling. We see the concept of vocation becoming so closely attached with a person's occupation or career that the words they, they become synonymized and secularized without any reference to God as the caller. Uh, the pursuit of vocation becomes an end in itself. As McKenzie points out, this is true for both capitalism and Marxism. Both encourage us to look for personal fulfillment through the work of our own hands. Once people worked to live, and now they live to work. Whereas once the medieval church threatened to divorce faith from work, pull back, 
um, just you know, be the contemplative life. Now, there's so closely fused faith and work that work has become idolized. <clears throat> uh, it is this distortion that deprives the unemployed person or the person engaged in unpaid domestic or voluntary work, deprives them of status and security and satisfaction because it emphasizes that those things are primarily associated with employment. When, um, when the pilgrims settled here in America, they came over and it's just this vast land. And they're trying to form colonies, community. There were like zero jobs, but there was a ton of work. And that's the way we need to think about it in terms of our call. we're called to work. Yesterday I spent 12 hours you know, uh, at work because I haven't much time during the week because I have a job, which is part of my calling. Um, but this is also part of my calling. I just have to fit it in between all the other parts of my calling, like playing with the kids and helping Casey run the house. And, and so we have multiple callings, <clears throat> but it's not all our, our, our occupation. I don't always get paid for everything, at least not you know, uh, from in the bank account. We receive blessings from obedience to our calling from God. All right, so um, work, once degraded, is now worshipped, right? Here in America, at least, but around the world. And things that are worshipped demand great sacrifices. Work is one of those. Um, I want to give us a story. This, the lesson is called The Meaning of Means. I want to give you a story of... Uh, William Carey, father of the modern missionary movement. He happened to be called in what we might consider this sacred sphere, even though we just said, tear down that wall, Christ is Lord over all. You know, um, when Casey's changing Abby's diaper, she's serving God and her neighbor in her calling. And it's just as uh, noble and helpful to the kingdom as Doug preaching his last sermon behind the pulpit. Okay. Um, but I want to talk about William Carey because uh, we're looking at means and how God works through means. And he, um, he had some good contributions to that conversation. So William Carey was born in uh, Northamptonshire, England, in August of uh, 1761. His father was a weaver and a local schoolmaster um, at the parish schools. So Church of England, they had you know, parish uh, schools, and uh, he, he would help sort of organized that in his area. They were not poor, but they were also not wealthy. You know, they had food on the table, but there was not enough money for William to be um, able to be formally trained. He wasn't going to go to university, that kind of stuff. But he was really clever. He was a bright young man, Um, so much so that he more or less taught himself Latin by the age of 10. He had a little bit of help from someone who used to be associated with uh, professorship, um, who just happened to be around, and so he would, you know, meet with him here and here and there to make sure he was doing it right. But he would read the grammars and figure it out. Yeah, um, he uh, he apprenticed as a cobbler at age fourteen, and with the help of some uh, local tradesmen who who did have classical education, he went on to learn Greek. He was really good, proficient at languages. Um, he read widely but was really influenced by a couple of uh, folks in particular. There was a a journal of the missionary David Brainerd, 
that uh, Carrie poured over and love to hear about, you know, what, what was going on on the front, on the front lines uh, and these other, these people groups, what was, um, what was needed and how, how, how could you see gospel fruit in places that hadn't yet, you know, been churched or heard the gospel. He also uh, was very interested in the writings of Captain James Cook, who was a British explorer and a cartographer. And so he would, you know, get everything that he could get in from like trying to piece together maps of the world and what's the population in this area and what are the details of what's going on here. And so really uh, just pragmatic and and tactile as well as gospel oriented. And this developed in him. God used these interests uh, to spur in him a great desire for for world missions. Um, Carey became a, a Baptist pastor in 1785 um, during his early 20s, um, and he still served bivocationally as a cobbler to support himself. He um, wasn't making any money off of it. He was just trying to serve God where he was. Uh, at the first gathering of the local pastors in his parish in 1786, he was asked as the new guy to give kind of a devotional. And in it, uh, based on his extensive reading of Bernard and uh, or Brainerd and Cook and his growing belief in the need to, you know, spread the gospel beyond his borders, he pitched in this devotion his passion for world missions. And when he was finished, uh, (laughs) an older pastor by the name of John Ryland stood up and said, Sit down, young man. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Um, Ryland and some uh, others in you know, his ilk were um, had taken what Calvin had taught about uh, you know the sovereignty of God, and they had pushed it way further than Calvin would ever go to this hyper Calvinism, some sort of this determinism. It's going to happen. Why do I even try? Why do I pray? Why do I, you know? And um, things that Calvin would never support and would you know wholeheartedly condemn. Uh, but undeterred, Kerry went back to his cobbler shop and his regular pulpit ministry, and he continued his study of the state of the unchurched world. He created what was known as Carey's Cobbler's Map. So he would take leather from the shoes and things that he was putting together, and he made this big uh, map of the world, as he understood it, um, from the cartography of Captain Cook. And, uh, and then he would put in, in detail what's the population of this place and what's, you know, what are the, what's life like there and and anytime someone would come in to get their shoes worked on and show any interest whatsoever in the board, he would walk them over there and he would tell them all about it. And with sometimes tears in his eyes, he would be, you know, this is what life is like for them. And um, very passionate about the need. In the meantime, while he was doing this, he worked hard on a response to that sentiment from uh, Ryland and, uh, and others who, who shared it. And in 1792, he published... His book entitled, and this is why I'm bringing it up, An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. Because Carey understood that God works through means. And he loves his people through his people through the work of his people, through the calling of his people. And so he makes this grand case that's laid out in five parts. At first he has theological justifications and he kind of gives a history of Christian missions. Uh, He gives 
tables of the world populations that he's collected to kind of show you a state of the thing. He answers some of the objections that he's heard, and then he, he closes with a call to action. It's maybe 80 or 90 pages. You can find it online. Type in William Carey and Inquiry PDF, and you'll find um, it had a huge impact. In 1792, the Baptist Missionary Society was formed. It was the first of myriad, every Christian denomination around, Scottish Missionary Society, Presbyterian Missionary Society, Dutch Missionary Society, everywhere around, and they started sending people all over. <clears throat> um, he finally raised up enough uh, you know, s- support and resources and had a direction in place so that the next year, 1793, he sailed for India with his family. There's a bunch of twists and turns. Uh, not every, he wasn't welcomed because the Christianization of India was going to hurt the, the tea company. And uh, There's a whole bunch of different things that's worth reading. He had his wife had some issues after the loss of one of their children. And, but he remained faithful in serving in India until his death um, in, in 1834. Um, a summary of his teaching was often shared with his students. And, and it, it, uh, a saying, I don't know if he, he quoted it often or if it was just something that was summarized by him. So much so that it was, it's, it's put on his, um, his tombstone. And it's a good perspective for us on calling. Expect great things from God. And attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. This is a summary of William Carey. This, I think, is a good summary of the Christian life, of calling. And uh, I, I hope that it will resonate in your minds as we, as we think about it here. I do have some closing thoughts. I wanted to share four passages of Scripture with some emphasis um, and, then, and then maybe tie down into some application before we wrap up. Um, the Apostle Peter, writing in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 17, says this. And this is true to his audience um, 2,000 years ago. It's applicable to us now. It's been written for and applicable to the church from then to now and will be applicable for the church in years to come, however long the Lord might tarry. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Earlier, um, Jesus was asked uh, a question and uh, summarized all of the law and the prophets in response. In Matthew 22, 34 through 40, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, uh, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Paul takes these truths and applies them to the Corinthians and the Colossians and others. But in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he says this, So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Eating or drinking is that's pretty normal daily work. Colossians 3:17 and 23 through 24 says, "And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men." knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So, as you go throughout your day, today and tomorrow and every day, be aware of what is actually going on. It's easy to get into a rhythm and to be reactive instead of proactive. It's easy to just have blinders on and plod along and take the next steps and check things off the box and get things done. And it's important to get things done. You know, um, sitting around kumbayaing all day long helps no one. Uh, it's important to get things done. But you need to labor in your labor to know the why behind every what that you do. When you're brushing your teeth in the morning, what are you actually doing? When you're driving through traffic, what are you doing? When you're answering the phone or making that call, 
What is it that you're really doing? When you're hauling that load, whatever it may be, what are you doing? When you're changing that diaper, what are you doing? When you're writing that email or sweeping that floor or running that errand, what is it that you're actually doing? Well, if done in faith, if it's done according to these scriptures, if done all to the glory of God, then you are loving the Lord your God in all of those things. You are loving your neighbor. And plainly stated by the Apostle Paul, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So as you examine yourself and your work and your daily walk and your heart in the midst of it all, ask yourself if you're being faithful to these commands and to the degree that you're not, which we all are not, ask God to help you grow in that. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your graciousness that you pour out on us by giving us purpose behind our work. You've given us life. You've given us meaning. You've given us the greatest, most lofty, most amazingly unfathomable, unreachable, wonderful why behind all of the work that we do. Help us not to be blind to that. Help us to, by faith and not by sight alone, walk through our days and pour out ourselves as an offering to you that we might seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and trust in you to provide all the things that we need. We want to see our Lord glorified and his name lifted up. So help us to do that in all that we do in our hearts, in our words, in our deeds. Because you, Lord Jesus, deserve it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.